David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I would not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he had instructed the messengers. When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, This shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter bother you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when... She, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, the story is a familiar one, isn't it? 
it's indeed it's played out in every form of drama that is known to us. I mean, if you realize, you think about it, the tale that we read here is a tale that is almost as old as creation and and yet it is as new as today's headlines. The names and the faces may change, the times and the context may evolve, but the tragic story remains the same. Adultery fills our history books, our television and movie screens. It forms the backdrop, doesn't it, of our novels and our stories from kings and queens to politicians and preachers, from businessmen to athletes, from soldiers to saints, housewives, mistresses and teachers. The the history of redemption, the history of humanity is often told in the story of betrayal and illicit and illegal relationships. Some are more famous than others, but none more so than David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Outside of perhaps Goliath, no name is so frequently accompanied David's name than is Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. With with Goliath, David sets the standard for victory, doesn't he? Then with Bathsheba, he sets the standard for failure. David and Bathsheba. And though the Bible says truthfully that David was a man after God's own heart, it, it also shows us indeed that the best of men are really just men at best. Again and again. David is a man subject to the same faults and, and frailties that, that we are. And this morning, we look at David and his gross failures. And I hope that we see ourselves and we see our need for an even greater Savior. Our text this morning has three important movements I want to walk us through to instruct us as to the nature of this unfortunate incident and the dangers, the dangers that are inherent for us in our lives. There's three movements I want us to see. First, I want us to look at the setup. And then we will look at the hookup. And then we will examine the cover-up. But let's look at the setup. You see it there in verse 1, don't you? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
David remained in Jerusalem. You, if you go back and look at chapter 10 of, of 2 Samuel, you'll see that diplomacy with the, with the Ammonites had broken down. And, and now it was time once again to go to war for God's people to do battle with God's enemy. And rather than lead God's people into this battle, the Bible says that David lounged on the couch. two things that I see here that David did. The first one is that David was comfortable. He had gotten comfortable. While the men of Israel were out defending the nation and the king, David was lounging on his couch. And this, beloved, I think says more to us than just the fact that he was taking a nap. But I think this begins to speak to his spiritual condition at the time. He's lounging. He's comfortable. Apparently, he had begun to read his own press clippings. Apparently, he had begun to listen to himself on CNN. Heard himself on the radio, admiring himself in the mirror. Gotten comfortable. He grew confident in himself and apparently comfortable in his own heart. Therefore, he took time off from war. He took time off from the battle. morning, I would hope that we understand that life is never so comfortable as to relax from the battle that is sin in our lives. We ought never get so comfortable that we take time off from doing battle. In fact, I would suggest to us this morning that the more comfortable you get, the more on guard you should be. Or it is when life is going well that you should be all the more diligent. So as we see with David, David did not deal well with the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh. But before David didn't deal well with the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh, David failed in doing well against the pride of life. He got comfortable. But I would suggest to you this morning, beloved, that in our battle against sin, there are no days off. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. In other words, he says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave. It is a daily exercise. As long as Satan The world and the flesh is diligent, then we must be diligent as well. When Satan takes the day off, then I'll take one. When the flesh takes a day day off, then I'll take one. 
when the world decides that it's no longer going to bombard me with the evils of its, of its desires and its views, then I'm going to take a day off. But until then, Paul says, I discipline my body. I train my mind. I bring it under subjection. I own it. It must not. It cannot own me. David got comfortable. But David didn't just get comfortable. David got comfortable and therefore David got complacent. Just get complacent. He not only failed to go to war, beloved, but he failed to examine his own heart. He was idle. You know what they say. It's an idle mind. It's a devil's workshop. And he was idle. Apparently, he thought more highly of himself than he should have. He thought less of his sinfulness than he should have. You know, comfort and complacency are prime conditions for the wiles of the enemy. But sin grows well, beloved, in the valley of ease and plenty. It really does. This is why John Owen said it so rightly. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. David should have been out killing the Ammonites, but instead he was at home killing time. Killing time is never a good idea. He should have been out killing sin, but instead he was at home lounging on the couch. Sin was killing him. And that's the setup that leads to the hookup. Verse 2 through 5 tells us. That while David failed to be where he was supposed to be, doing what he was supposed to be doing, and as a result, he fell. He fell into gross and, and grievous sin by hooking up with Bathsheba. And if you notice the text and you read the text, there is a direction to the text. There is this downward spiral because we never sin up. We always sin down. And it is a downward spiral. You notice that. And it begins with a look. And that look leads to a longing. And that longing gives way to a lust. And that lust always ends in loss. 
always. You see that? It began with a look, didn't it? It began with a look. Like most sins of passion, it began with a look. David goes for a walk, and something catches his eye. Something beautiful, something attractive, something enticing catches his eye. Just a walk on the rooftop seems innocent enough. I'm bored. Seems innocent enough. I go to the computer and turn it on. Seems innocent enough. I'm bored. I turn on Netflix. Can't be too bad, right? It's just a chick flick. Innocent enough. After all, it's on lifetime television. Can't be too bad, right? Innocent enough. It's just a walk. But because the heart had grown complacent, because he was not diligent, because he had grown comfortable, The walk leads him into this downward spiral. Like most sins, beloved, it is the eye. It's the eye that is the portal to the heart, isn't it? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It's the eye. It's a portal into the heart that the enemy desires. It's so he places the desires before our eyes. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 25, the Bible says, Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Keep your eyes on the prize, in other words. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Know the tendency of your heart to be prone to wonder. And therefore, the proverb says, let your gaze be straight ahead. Straight ahead. And what's ahead of you? The, bio, the, song, the songwriter says, it's right, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of the world, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What happened? David got his eyes off of Christ. And that's what happened. We turn our eyes off of Christ. We look, we behold the world, and it starts with a look. It starts with a look. But it could have ended with a look. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's beautiful. Turn your eyes back on Christ. But Christ is nicer. Christ is more beautiful. Christ is more adoring. Sin is a downward spiral, beloved, and the look became a longing. 
because he looked, and there he kept his gaze. And there he maintained his gaze. David went beyond looking, for he began to long for Bathsheba. We know this because it says he sent to know her name. He sent to know her and to know about her. The Bible says in verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. The woman is none of his business. But it went beyond a look, didn't it? At that point, he began to inquire. What's your name? I need the number. I got to know. What could have been nipped in the bud at the look was allowed to fester and grow into a longing. Why? And don't miss this, beloved, because what we look at too long, we long to have. What we look at too long, we long to have. Longing happens in the heart. You know what David began to do? What we began to do. He didn't just look. Now he begins to imagine. He imagines her. He begins to not just look, but now he begins to imagine himself with her. In his heart, he creates the scenario that can be worked out and, and, and begins to create a longing for the reality that is in his heart to become true. So he imagines it. He longs for it. He imagines what it would be like to be with her. And this longing gets the best of him. Proverbs chapter 4 and 23 reminds us Keep your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart. Guard it. Look and then nip it in the bud so it doesn't become a longing. Don't allow yourself to rehearse it over and over and over again and to imagine all the scenarios. Why? Because Matt, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Sounds like Jesus had David in mind. Out of the heart these things come. You know, unlike the psalmist in Psalm 42 and verse 2, which says, my soul thirsts for you, O God. David's heart has ceased to thirst for God. And now he, he, he thirsted for Bathsheba. 
And that long gave way then to the lust. But what is lust? It is nothing but the inordinate affection, desire that consumes us and consumed him and that he had to have it at all costs. He no longer just imagined what it would be like to be with her. Now he's going to do whatever he has to do to make it a reality. What was the longing in his heart? What was but a picture on his phone? What was but an image on his screen? now must become a reality in his home. Do you see the downward spiral? You look long enough at the pictures, and then the pictures will no longer suffice. You imagine over and over in your head long enough and soon imagination will not be enough. So we see. He must have her. So therefore he doesn't care. He doesn't care what anybody is saying. He doesn't care what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. He doesn't care about the songs that he's written. He doesn't care about anything that he's learned over the years of walking with God. If lusting with you is wrong, I don't want to be right. So it is. Notice what the Bible says. He's going to have her at all costs. He don't care what it costs. And the cost, is, the cost is going to be great. He doesn't care. He says, the Bible says that he sent and he took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Isn't it interesting how the Bible relates to this? I'm not talking about any romance, any talking. It doesn't, it doesn't give us whether or not there's this heart-to-heart connection or anything like that. The Bible wants us to know that at the heart of this is not love, it is lust. Don't look for the affection in illicit relationships, beloved. It is lust. It is not godly affection. It is not God-honoring love. No matter how much you try to twist your mind into believing that, if it is against the will of God, it is lust. It is sin. That's what the Bible wants us to see. He saw her. He sent for her. He took her, and he laid with her, period. And notice that the, that the look that became the longing, that gave way to the lust, it always ends the same. There's a loss. 
cost you? We'll see. It cost David a lot. It's a loss. Why? Because you don't win with sin. You're just not going to win. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25 tells us that there is a pleasure in sin for season. Indeed it is. That is the promise of it. If it wasn't no pleasure in it, you wouldn't pursue it. We wouldn't go after it. If they didn't hold out some level of pleasure, some moment of satisfaction and fulfillment, there is a pleasure in sin for a season. But we all know, if we are honest this morning, that when the season comes to its quick conclusion, there is only pain and suffering and loss. Every time. Every time. You don't win with sin. You don't. Why? Because sin is against God. And all who fight against God, they lose. You lose. Sin is not winning. No matter what Charlie Sheen says. What are you doing? Duh. Losing. That's what you're doing. Duh. Because when you sin, you lose. Always. Sin is fighting against God. And God never loses. This is David. He's in for a loss. He's in for a loss. Sin promises much. It does. Pleasure, delight, fulfillment. But what it gives you in one moment, it takes that and more in the next. It takes it. This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and do what? And lose his soul because sin is losing. There is a way, the Bible says, the Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end is loss. It's loss. It's destruction. There's always loss. And this we see in the cover-up. We see it in the cover-up. And now we've seen the setup, and we, we exactly looked at the hookup, and now we could see that David now must engage in the cover-up. And the majority of the text is taken up with the cover-up, isn't it? Majority of the text, from 6 down to 27, is taken up with the cover-up and the consequences of David's sins. And this is rightly so, because apparently David sins more and David sins greater in the cover-up than he did in the hook-up. Why? Because sin is a downward spiral. Whenever you try to cover it up, it just compounds and compounds and compounds and layers upon layer upon layer. That's how sin works. It's compounds. It's, it's, it's layer upon layer. It's like a merry-go-round. It goes faster and faster and faster and faster. You find yourself hard-pressed to get off. 
someone has rightly said that sin will take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. And this is what happened with David, isn't it? It took him further than he wanted to go. It took him further than he wanted to go. But David thought, David thought in his mind, as we all do, that he could just hook up with Bathsheba and that would be the end of it. Thought that would be done. But, but, but sin always has other ideas. You don't bring sin into your life for a season and then be done with it. Sin is not your friend. It doesn't work that way. Sin is not kind, beloved. But David perceived that he was done. She's gone. And he enjoyed the pleasure of sin for a season until the one that he sent away sent back a message. She doesn't say much. Bathsheba doesn't say much in all of this. But what she says is enough. She sends back word. I am Now, there ain't no need for no debate. David ain't playing Michael Jackson. Billie Jean is not my lover. She's just a girl who claims that I am the one, but the kid is not my son. Sorry. The Bible makes it clear, David, you the baby daddy. There ain't no doubt. For you see the... The, 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 the phrase there in parentheses reminds us the point that the text wants us to see is that Bathsheba had just come from her monthly cleaning. Her cycle. When Uriah left her, she was not pregnant. David, it's yours. That's what the text wants. That's what the text wants to drive home. Ain't no getting out of this one, baby. And David knows it. He knows it. And so what happens? The adulterer becomes a deceiver and a conspirator. Sir Walter Scott, he says, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And now the spiral continues down and down and down because, beloved, there are no innocent sins. The adulterer now must become a liar. And the liar, the liar must become a conspirator to cover up his sin. Why? Because sin not only takes you farther than you want to go, sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. 
You notice that, don't you? You read the text, you read the story. And here's David. Now he has to bring Uriah back home from the battlefield and over to cover for his sin. And so he tries to trick Uriah into going home and to being with his wife Bathsheba, but Uriah just won't cooperate. He just won't cooperate with David's scheme. And twice, twice he tries to convince Uriah. And twice he fails, even, even seeking to induce him with alcohol. I mean, come on, man. You've been on a battlefield all this time. Been around nothing but men. Don't you want to go home to your wife? You know, Uriah's moral compass surely put David to shame. He says, David, how can I do such a thing? The ark of God is dwelling in the tent. All of Israel is out on the battlefield, sleeping on the ground. In danger by day and danger by night, my comrade and my comrades in arms. In other words, he, he's really indicting the heart of David. David, what are you doing? Why are you lounging around? And David even seeks to induce him with alcohol. I mean, really, come on. Okay, okay, I understand you got some you know, high morals and everything. I understand that, but we can break them down with a little juice. Juice always breaks it down. Notice that even juiced up, Uriah won't take even juiced up, Uriah won't take the bait. You know, beloved, sin doesn't go away just by covering it up. It doesn't. It only festers. It only grows. Lie requires another lie. One layer of deceit leads to another layer. You notice that David just couldn't stop. He wouldn't stop. His pride had got the best of him. Covering up sin does not conquer sin. The only way that we conquer sin is if we confess sin. The only sin you conquer is the sin you confess. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, Oh, what a verse. You should commit to memory and, and, be, and return to it over and over again. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There is no prosperity in the concealing of the sin. But we know this, that the promises come to us in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. 
That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is sin in your life that can be conquered, but it must be confessed. And he who has promised is faithful. Confess it, David. And we can conquer it. If you don't, It will conquer you. It will conquer you. And by refusing to confess his sin, David became more and more and more entangled. Beloved, let us not be deceived. Sin is an entangling power that has to be broken, not by might, not by cleverness. It is only broken by the grace and mercy of God. That's why you must throw yourself upon God's mercy. If not, it will not only take you further than you want to go, but it will cost you more than you want to pay. And that's what happened to David. It cost him a lot more than he wanted to pay. Can you imagine? Just backtrack for a When David first saw Bathsheba, he had no intentions on murdering Uriah. That was not his intention. Sin is a downward spiral and it won't let you go. It is an entangling web. That the more you struggle against it, seeking to overcome it and cover it up by your own power, the more entangled you become. It's like a spider. You ever watch a spider web? You ever watch an insect get caught in a spider web? If you ever see it, you know, you're not too afraid. (laughs) You're not too afraid to watch it. It's an interesting phenomenon. That insect hits that spider web. And you know, oftentimes the spider is not in a hurry. You know why? Because the spider knows that the more the insect struggles to get out of the web, the more entangled the insect becomes. The spider can take its time and get there. So it is with sin. You got more and more and more entangled. And it costs you more than you really intended to pay. What's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you death. That's what it does. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. And sin won't stop until it costs you your life. David had a desire for Bathsheba, beloved, but... He didn't have a desire to kill her husband. But you see, sin always takes you further than you think. It always costs you more than you want to pay. And it cost David a lot. Notice it cost him his character. It cost him his character. This was the man who taught the nation how to sing. 
This was the mighty one who had stood before Goliath. This is the one who stood with integrity in, uh, against the assaults of Saul. This is the one who they, had, they were singing songs about. This is the one that all of Israel admired as the ladies, ladies sung his praises. This is the one who brought the ark of God back into Jerusalem. This is the one who centralized the worship of God. Now, this is the one fully given over. Lust of his flesh and the shame of it all. He lost his character. I mean, not only did he lose his character, he lost his cool, didn't he? He lost his cool. Because he figured, I'm just going to invite Uriah home. You see, he was thinking rationally that at least a little bit, okay, what can I do? I can invite Uriah home. Uriah lies with his wife, all is done. But when Uriah would not cooperate, David loses his mind. So he, he writes a letter and he gives it to Uriah to give to Joab to kill Uriah. Over what? Your adultery with his wife? David, are you losing your mind? That's what sin does. Causes you to lose your cool. He lost his character. He lost his cool. You know what else he lost? He lost his compassion. He did. He lost his compassion. David was a shepherd of God's people. He was the lover of God. He was a lover of God's people. He was a lover of Israel. He was a lover of his soldiers. He loved his men. But when he heard the word that Uriah had died, And knowing the effect that they, that might have on Joab, he sent word to Joab. Don't worry. After all, everybody got to die of something. Don't let your heart mourn. One soldier dies here, another one dies there. Get back at the battle and win the war. Where, where is the shepherd of Israel? Where is he? Where is the lover of God's people? Where is that man? Where is the lover of his men? Where is that man? He's totally consumed and entangled in the web of his own sin. Oh, you know what David said when he heard that Jonathan and, and, and Saul had died? 
He mourned, didn't he? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, he fell further than Jonathan and Saul ever did. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. For the deed is done. This man after God's own heart because of the lust of his eyes and the lust of his flesh and the pride of his life has become an adulterer, a deceiver, a liar, a murderer, an abuser of men. And the list goes on and on. Do you know the interesting thing about it? David thought the ordeal was done. It was done. Uriah's dead. Sin for Bathsheba, marry Bathsheba. As long as nobody does the math, everything is okay. The deal is done. One soldier dead. No harm, no foul. The cover-up had worked. He took Bathsheba to be his wife. And no one was the wiser. That is, no one but God. No one but God. And beloved, get this, let us know this for surety. That your sin is not dealt with until God says it's dealt with. Your sin is not done until God says it's done. The Bible says, just matter of factly, this thing that David did displeased God. God was displeased with David's sin. And God will not put up with David's sin any more than he's willing to put up with our sin. Our sin displeases God just like David's sin did. Here, beloved, here, here, here is where we must learn, I believe, are two important truths about this text and about ourselves. And the first one is this, that no one, no one is immune to gross and grievous sin. I mean, beloved, if David, if David can fall, anybody can. Never, never look at David and marvel too long except to say, except for the grace of God, there I am. If David can fail, anybody can fail. I don't care how much you sing or how well you preach or how often you serve. Sin is always always crouching at our doors, seeking at any moment to pounce. Comes with the promise of pleasure for a season. The promise of wealth. The promise of prestige. The promise of position only to cost you everything in the end. Jeremiah 17 to 9 is still true. 
The heart is deceitful. And it is sick. And know it. Know that truth, beloved. David, a man after God's own heart, can fall into gross and grievous sin. So can you. So can I. No one is is immune to gross and grievous sin. But also know this, beloved, that no sin is too gross or grievous for our Savior. It looks bad, doesn't it? It really looks bad. But I want you to know that I don't care how bad it looks. It never looks too bad for Jesus. No sin is so gross. No sin is so grievous. Though God is displeased with David, here is the remarkable thing. He doesn't forsake him. He's not going to forsake him. He is going to provide for him redemption. Why? Why? Because that is who God is. That is what God does. He redeems. He redeems. No sin is too great. No transgression is too gross. David was charged, beloved, and was charged rightly with a multitude of sins. Adultery, lying, stealing, conspiracy to commit murder, murder, the abuse of power, pride, over and over again, and many others. Do you know what Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says? He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. He canceled it. Adultery, canceled. Lying, canceled. Murder, canceled. Pride, canceled. Do we have any more this morning? Fornication, canceled. Homosexuality, canceled. Lust, canceled. Lying, canceled. Greed, canceled. It's John Newton wrote the words, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captives free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood avail for me. You know, that's what David's going to be singing. months and the years to come, that's going to be his song. His blood makes the vilest clean, beloved. You read that and you say, David, can you get any more foul? Then you look at yourself. And you say, oh, yes, he could have. If you'd asked Paul, Paul would have said, you think David is bad. Let me tell you about me. 
And I would step up behind Paul and say, you think Paul is bad. Let me tell you about me. And yet, beloved, he breaks the power of cancer sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood makes the foulest and the vilest clean. And his blood avails. Avail for me. If it can avail for me, it can avail for you. I pray that it is this, this morning, right now, that you know for surety that his blood is availing for you. No sin, beloved, is too gross. No transgression is too great. But that the blood of Christ can cleanse you from every one and make you clean. Let's pray. No one leaves here without that being the reality in their life.